So wherever you are joining um, us from today, whether you are here in the room, whether you are at home uh, on YouTube or Zoom, whether you are uh, away on holiday, kind of tuning in, I just want to kind of invite you this morning to, um, to, to kind of literally physically remove any distractions. I know in here it's a bit easier to focus, but at home I know it's tempting to you know, pick up your phone and what have you, have one eye on this, one eye on something else. I, I genuinely believe, and I'm going to look right at you at home today, um, I genuinely believe that God wants to meet you this morning. He, he wants to invite you to encounter him. And to do that, sometimes we need to just lay aside any distractions. So I would just encourage you um, to do that this morning and focus. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to do anything wonderful, but I have a feeling God might want to. So, um, so let's get ready. Are you ready to meet him in the room? Yeah? Come on. Uh, So we are in a series. um, We are looking at the Lord's Prayer. Uh, John kicked us off last week looking at the first line, Our Father in Heaven. And uh, we did a prayer series relatively recently. So we're not focusing this time on like how to pray as such. We're actually asking the question, what does the Lord's Prayer tell us about the God we pray to? What, what do these words, when, when Jesus' followers came to him and said, teach us how to pray, and he gave them this beautiful, simple kind of few lines to pray, what does that actually tell us about the God that we pray to? Now, before we get cracking on the next line of the Lord's Prayer this morning, uh, it's probably really important to address something. And, and it's kind of fundamental to our faith. And I don't think this will be too controversial. Um, I hope it's not, anyway. <laughs> but the, the, the foundational understanding we really need when we're addressing something like this is the truth that God gets to decide who he is, we don't. Okay? Like, we, we need to understand this, that, that it, you and I don't get to decide who God is. He gets to decide who he, who he is, and then he gets to be the one who chooses how and when he reveals that to people, right? I, don't, I hope that's not too controversial a thing to say. For example, when Moses meets God in a bush that is on fire but isn't burning up, um, God reveals himself, and there are several things happen in this moment that are actually very relevant to the subject today. God says, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. He says, don't come any closer. And he reveals, this is the first time in scripture, that God reveals himself by name. And the name that he uses is Yahweh, which means I am who I am. This is like the very statement that underpins this understanding, that God, God gets to decide who he is, not us. He says, I am, I, I am, <laughs> I just am, <laughs> I am who I am, not I am whoever you think I am, not I am whoever you feel I am, or even not I am whoever you wish I am, just I am. I am who I am. I am unchangeable. I am who I am. And I determine who I am. Me, Caleb, I am a five foot eleven Yorkshireman with dark hair, with a little bit of grey if you look closely these days after this year. And, uh, and brown eyes. I'm five foot eleven. I'm actually five foot eleven and a half. But I tend not to say that to people because it sounds like I'm really bitter that I never got 
to like six foot, which I'm really, really not, obviously. So I just go with 5'11". But I am undeniably a 5'11 Yorkshireman with dark hair and brown eyes. If you were to leave this room this morning and head outside, and, uh, and as you were chatting to somebody on your way out, which you're allowed to do off our premises this morning in groups of up to six, uh, socially distanced, of course, uh, you might say to somebody, uh, actually, you know what? I think Caleb's actually a seven-foot-tall Chinese woman. <laughs> and that other person might say to you, actually, no, I think Caleb is a four-foot-six Ugandan man. Uh, you would both be wrong, wouldn't you? I am who I am, undeniably, a five-foot-eleven Yorkshireman with dark hair and brown eyes. Even if someone were to come along to you two having this conversation and they said, you know what, you're both right as long as you believe it in your heart, you would still be wrong, wouldn't you? Undeniably, I am who I am and God is who he is. Not who we wish he might be, not who we feel he is, he is who he is. God is the one who gets to determine who he is and how he reveals himself to us. And he's done so wonderfully through the Bible, hasn't he? Like, that's the first place we go. He's revealed himself to people throughout history in the Bible and perfectly in the person of Jesus. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus, the perfect representation of the Father. And we read about him in the Gospels. God is who he is, even whether you or I or anybody else believes that's who he is or not. God is who he is, whether you or I like it or not. God is who he is, whether you or I or anybody else is comfortable with who he says he is or not. And I want to suggest this morning, that that is a really good thing. Because if you think about the alternative, design your own God. I mean, like, let's not kid ourselves, right? If we were to design a God, and even if we got all the most wonderful people in the world together and we said, your task is to design a good and perfect God, we would end up with a God made in the image of man, and he would be selfish, he would be broken. I would suggest he would be quite dangerous. So let's not kid ourselves that we could do a better job than God of designing who he is and his nature, right? He is who he is, and for me, I would much rather follow the God of the Bible, who is perfect, who created and sustains the universe, than a God that me or anyone else could design or invent. Are you with me on this? Okay, now, that is a good thing, but it comes with some challenges, and here is the challenge, right? The temptation with this is that we we emphasize certain aspects of God's nature, the ones that we think people will like and be comfortable with, and we tend to not emphasize some aspects of God's character and his nature 
that might make us uncomfortable or other people uncomfortable, right? Can we be honest about that? We face that temptation to, to, to just place emphasis on certain things and not on other aspects of who he is. We need to talk about one of these today because it's the next line in the Lord's Prayer. We need to talk about the holiness of God. Last week, John unpacked the Father, our Father in heaven, and it's a wonderful picture, isn't it? For most people, yes, for some it causes all kind of issues in terms of if their you know, personal experience of, a, of an earthly father is not a good one. But on the whole, it's a positive image that we can give, right? It's, it's palatable to us. God as our Father. Today, we look at the holiness of God. And it maybe isn't quite so comfortable. We get to this line in the Lord's Prayer. Scott, you can put that up for us. Hallowed be your name. Or in my version, um, the NLT that I'm working from here, may your name be kept holy. Hallowed is a, is, a, is a word that kind of evokes quite a lot, but really it is, it's kind of holiness. It's about holding something in, in high regard. Um, we have to recognize here. So this is an interesting thing. Sometimes we get a bit confused about this. Hallowed be your name. It is actually a request. It's a petition. It's part of a prayer. It's not a statement that we make about God. It's not, we're not saying to him, God, your name is holy. We're actually requesting. We're saying, God, may your name be kept holy in my life, in the lives of others, in this world. May your name be kept holy. And hallowed really just, just means that, to treat something as holy. Jesus is encouraging us to pray that God's name will be kept holy. Why? Because he is holy. God is holy. Essentially, the prayer is, God, may we and all people recognize who you say you are and reflect this in our lives. So let's talk about God's holiness. We could go to various passages in the Bible to talk about this. I am just going to go for Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, which is helpfully in your chats in exactly the right version because John Day has copied it from the internet and put it in there for you, which is really helpful. Thank you, John. Um, so Isaiah chapter 6, uh, verses 1 to 7. We're going to read through it and talk about it as we go. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. So King Uzziah, uh, some people would, would probably say he was definitely in like the top five kings um, of, of the, the Israelites. Um, he, was, he was a bit of a kind of macho figure, a bit of a military leader. And so in the year he died, the assumption is that there was kind of confusion. Um, people uh, just kind of lost their way. What happens next, God? Um, this, this good leader who had, um, who had died. Isaiah makes this statement, in the midst of this confusion, I saw the Lord. It's a bold statement. It's a big statement. This is, this is an event, right? This isn't just a kind of, I was, I was thinking the other day, and, um, and I just, this thought popped into my head. This is a moment that Isaiah experiences here. Was it a vision? Was it a dream? Was he literally transported into the temple? Uh, we, we don't know, but he says that he saw the Lord. This is how he describes this scene, and this is where we're going to spend most of the time this morning. 
He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the robe and his uh, sorry, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So you've got this God sitting on a lofty throne. He's got this robe. He's wearing a robe, and the train of it, the trails of this robe, are so great that they fill the entire temple. When you picture God, do you imagine him sitting on a throne? (laughs) It's an interesting thought, isn't it? A king, majesty, royalty, this king, this God on a lofty throne. Then he describes this, attending him were mighty seraphim. These are like angelic beings, each having six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces, and with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they flew. You've you've got these, these, these heavenly beings here in the presence of God, and they are so... They are so impacted. They are so aware of God's holiness and his majesty and his perfection and his glory that they're shielding themselves from him with their wings. They're covering themselves. We can't look upon his beauty and his holiness. And they're calling out to each other. They're saying, holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. All the while, while covering their faces, shielding themselves from the holiness of God, they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. Now, interestingly, throughout the entirety of the Bible, God is described as many different things, and we could probably reel off loads of them. He is loving and kind and compassionate and faithful, but he is only ever one thing three times in a row, (laughs) and that is holy. You get it here, and you get it in Revelation, when there is, again, a a similar kind of picture of, of God on his throne and angelic beings crying out, holy, holy, holy. It's almost like they can't emphasize this characteristic of God enough. Holy, holy, holy. He is set apart. He is different. He is perfect. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Everything you see that is created, a beautiful sunset, an awesome mountain range, the detail in a tiny little leaf, people created in his image. All of it is filled with his glory, reflecting God's glory and his holiness. The impact of this, verse 4, their voices shook the temple to its foundations and the entire building filled with smoke. Smoke is often representative in the Bible of of just God's presence, fire and smoke. And their voices, these these seraphim, these these aren't even God. (laughs) They're just singing about God, calling out, holy, holy, holy. Their voices shake the temple to its very foundations. Like this is a moment. This is what's happening. This is God on his throne being given worship that shakes the temple 
to its foundations. This is powerful stuff, isn't it? This is, a, this is a, an image that we are shown a glimpse into the holiness and the glory of God. This is who God says he is. This is how he reveals himself to Isaiah. Wow, God on a throne, kingly, majestic, with these beings shielding themselves from his holiness, crying out. It's backed up elsewhere, isn't it, through Scripture, this kind of idea in 1 Timothy 6, we get uh, God described as being unapproachable light. In Revelation, that verse I've just referenced, that the angels crying out, holy, holy, holy. The Jews were, were so aware of his holiness that they refused to speak the name Yahweh out loud. Do you wonder if maybe we have become over-familiar with God's grace and his mercy to the extent that we've lost sight of something of the holiness of God? Do you, do you think we, and, and these are good things, right? Mercy and grace, they are good and they make all the difference in how we interact with God's holiness. Absolutely. We should never downplay grace and mercy. But I just wonder sometimes, have we lost sight of the holiness and majesty of God and his name? Are we in danger of under-emphasizing his holiness? I am. <laughs> That's why in this moment, I just feel that kind of that conviction of the Holy Spirit. God, I have not revered your name and your holiness enough. It's very easy, isn't it? And I think we're probably all guilty of this for in our, in our interactions with God, whether it's our worship, whether it's our prayers, of, of thanking God for, for all that he's done for us, for the wonderful things that we get to enjoy because of him, for what he's done for us. But sometimes maybe, maybe we just need to stop and worship him and thank him and praise him just for who he is. <laughs> That's enough, isn't it? Just for who he is, for the, the perfection, for the majesty, for the holiness. Maybe we just need to stop and worship him for who he is. Uh, you know, a separate and apart from, if he'd never have done anything that he's done for us, could we just worship him for who he is? And if we capture a glimpse of God's holiness, then what's the correct response? Like, how should we respond to that? Well, <laughs> let's see what Isaiah, how he responds. Uh, verse 5, then I said, it's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Isaiah when he sees the holiness of God, 
the first thing, his response is, oh, my sin. He's so aware of his sinfulness. It's all over. I am doomed. He genuinely is expecting to die in this moment. Like Isaiah genuinely thinks, I have seen the holiness of God and I'm aware of my sinfulness. I cannot exist in the presence of this holiness. I'm going to (laughs) die. He genuinely thinks that he is about to die. It's a little bit like, I've got a picture here I want to show you of, of, of in fact, don't, not, not yet, I'll show that in a minute. Um, this, think about the sun for a minute. The sun is the source of all life on earth, right? Without the sun, we would very quickly, everything would end and die. The sun is good. The, the sun, not S-O-N, we're talking about S-U-N just to be clear here, although you can probably interchange this. Um, because he sustains everything on earth as well. Um, but the, the S-U-N, the star that our planet revolves around, it is the source of life on earth. And it is good, right? We are grateful and thankful for the sun that keeps us alive. But if you get too close to that sun, you are in trouble, right? You cannot exist if you get too close to that sun. Humans, for uh, the last few decades, have been trying to send spacecraft close to the sun. Do you want to know how close we've got so far? (laughs) 13 and a half million kilometers is as close as we've been able to get without something burning up in the sun's presence. We actually sent this thing, it's called the the Parker Solar Probe. Don't know if you can see it there. This is currently orbiting the sun and we'll keep going around the sun apparently and uh, a little bit closer each time. But the closest it's managed to get is 13 and a half million kilometers, even with this giant heat shield on it. You get too close to the sun, and it just burns you up. Not because it's bad, but because it's good. Because of its, the, the same life that sustains everything. You get too close to it, and nothing can exist. You just get burned up. It's the same with the holiness of God. You see this throughout Scripture. People fully expected that if they came face to face with God, you would die. You, you could not exist. Your sin would mean that you would just burn up. You could not exist in the presence of God. What happens next? Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. The only reason that Isaiah didn't die in that moment was because God showed him an act of mercy. He came to him with this burning coal. He touched his lips and he said, Because of my mercy... You are forgiven. Your guilt is removed. It's only because of an act of God's mercy that he's able to survive in that moment. The writer of Hebrews says that you and I can boldly approach God's throne of grace. How? (laughs) Only because of God's mercy. That's the only reason, because of Jesus, because of what he has done, because he has made a way, because he is perfect and he has 
we're kind of standing in his perfection before God when we've put our trust and our faith in him, when we've repented of living life our own way, when we've trusted in him, said, yes, Jesus, I believe in you, I receive you and your forgiveness. Only then can we stand in God's presence and can we boldly approach his throne of grace. But here's the challenge for us, right? Let's not allow our confidence in God's grace and his mercy to to stop us from realizing just how holy God is and how, in, in Isaiah's words, how doomed we would be if it weren't for his grace and mercy. That's the challenge for us, right? To try and hold these two things together as one. God is holy, completely too holy, too perfect for us, and we would be doomed. And yet, in his mercy through Jesus, we can boldly approach his throne, his holiness. Our challenge is to try and hold those two things together. And here's the challenge for us in how this relates to other people as well, right? The temptation is that, that we try and make God more palatable to people by emphasizing his, you know, his, his grace and his mercy and his loving nature. The temptation is to, to try and make God kind of easier to swallow for people by emphasizing those things. It's not really probably top of our list, is it, to start with, did you know that if you encountered God's holiness, you'd die? Like, that doesn't feel like the, the kindest thing to say to somebody, does it? It doesn't feel like the thing we would want to open with in a conversation with a stranger. Like, God's so perfect that you literally would die if you encountered him, <laughs> right? Like, a lot of us think, oh, you know, I really want to meet God one day. Are you ready for that? <laughs> like, th- this is not some light-hearted moment when you meet the perfect, holy God. It's probably not going to be top of our list of attributes of God to explain to people. However, I think by not doing that, we're robbing people actually of the joy and wonder of mercy, right? We, we think that we think that we, we're kind of making God more, more easy on the eye if we don't talk about this stuff. It's the opposite. I think that it's true. An understanding of God's holiness makes us more aware of our need for Jesus. It makes us more aware of his mercy towards us. It makes, more, it makes us more grateful for his grace doesn't it? How much more do you appreciate being forgiven when you know what the alternative is? (laughs) When you know that if you weren't a recipient of that, you couldn't stand in his presence. So God is holy and we want to pray, may your name be kept holy. Hallowed be your name, God. Uh, just, Just wave at me if you've ever been to uh, if you ever went to the old Wembley before they knocked it down, anybody been? A few people have been. Great. 
Did any of you stand on the hallowed turf of Wembley? Did anyone get to go and stand on the actual hallowed turf? No, I've never done that either. I actually never went to the old Wembley. Been to the new Wembley, which is absolutely brilliant. Um, but I've never stood on the hallowed turf of the old Wembley. However, I have stood on the turf of the hallowed turf of Bootham Crescent, uh, the home of York City football club, the Minstermen. I, uh, as a young man, my uncle used to take me regularly to games, and I can't remember the exact game. I've been trying to rack my brain. Can't remember what the game was. But there was a moment at Bootham Crescent where either, I don't know if it was like we made it to the playoffs or we just didn't lose one day, or I don't know what it was. Maybe it was a promotion thing or a beating a big team. But I, was, I remember I was in the, in the pop stand, uh, as it was, and, uh, and there's not much of a fence around the pitch at Bootham Crescent. So after the game, everybody just kind of poured onto the pitch. And me, as a probably 12, 13-year-old boy, was like, well, I'm off. If everyone else is off, I'm going. Probably didn't realize at the time you're not meant to do that. Uh, but anyway, I jumped over and I, and I stood on the hallowed turf of Bootham Crescent. I actually stooped down and picked a little bit of grass and put it in my pocket as a memento of that moment. I thought that I was on hallowed ground. It was a joyous moment. <laughs> but how much more should we be aware of just the, the holiness of God? And when we come to him in any moment, being aware that we are in God's presence, like Moses in, in that bush that is on fire but isn't burning up, that we are on holy ground. Surely the only right response to seeing, getting a glimpse of God's holiness is to bow down in awe and reverence of him. One of the most awe-inspiring scenes uh, in nature that I have ever seen uh, is the north face of the Eiger in Switzerland. I've got a little picture um, of this. I might have to press that magic button. Um, here you go, look. So I took that photo myself and um, it doesn't look inspiring on a picture, but if you look at those little stanchion things down in the bottom, those are like ski lifts, uh, like really big ones, <laughs> and those are really big hotels at the bottom. The north face of the Eiger is, for me, one of the most awe-inspiring sights I have ever seen. I had the joy of going skiing in the fa like around this area um, a good few years ago now, and... Um, and my word, it is just, it takes your breath away. You stand there, it goes straight out of the ground. You've got three mountains in a row, the Eiger, and the, the Monk, and the Jungfrau. And, uh, and it is stunning. You cannot help but look up, and you literally have to look up at it. Just go, wow. Like, wow, this mountain is incredible. I just wonder if, you know, th these things we spot like that, these moments in nature where we catch a glimpse of something awe-inspiring, it's just like a foretaste, a tiny little kind of whiff of what is to come, of, of the God who created it all. It is good for us to lift our eyes to God and to see his holiness, isn't it? It's good for us. Gives us a healthy sense of perspective. Helps us appreciate his grace and mercy more. Are you ready to encounter this holy God this morning? Yeah? Shall we 
shut our eyes, should we close our eyes, whether you're at home, uh, whether you are in the room this morning. I just want to invite you to um, to kind of think about your posture in this moment, literally your physical posture. Not in my mum's word, which would have been straighten your back, Caleb, but in the sense of like, how do you want to be? I'm going to invite you. We're going to invite God to come and meet us. How do you want to be? I'm going to invite you to imagine yourself in Isaiah's position before the throne of God. If you, it might be, I'm, I'm going to kneel down. <laughs> Don't know about anybody else. <laughs> it's up to you. You do what you want to do. I'm just going to kneel. God, we want to come before you, the creator and sustainer of the universe. We want to see you like Isaiah saw you, the Lord, the great I am. We want to thank you for your grace and your mercy, but we don't want to allow familiarity with that to obscure our view of your beauty, your holiness, your splendor. I'm just going to read these verses again and invite you to imagine yourself in this moment, in this vision, in the place of Isaiah. It was in the the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, 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 is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, it's all over. I am doomed for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. just want to leave some space here for you in your own words 
if that were you, if you were in Isaiah's shoes where in a vision you see, you catch a glimpse of this holy God, how would you respond? We're doing it in the light of Jesus, obviously, so it's different. But what's your response? Use your own words. Do it out loud if you want. Do it in your own heart. But how will you respond to the holiness of God? Just invite you to do that now in a moment of quiet.